Thank you, Lauren. Hey, I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm the College and Young Adults Pastor, and I'm excited to be here for this 9.30 only service. It's interesting, church attendance, a lot changed through COVID, so thankful for everyone here today that's uh, helped our church and been faithful, and it's really interesting. The 11 was kind of the hour, but 9.30 is the hour now, so if you're a regular 9.30 year, congratulations. You're bent towards achievement, and early rising has shifted the nature of our church. And if you're lazy like me and you come to the 11, we're glad that you are here today as we look uh, one more week in this sermon series that we've been in called Your Future Self Will Thank You. We're asking this question, what are the things that I could do today, the decisions I could make, the things I could prioritize, so that I can look back as my future self and say, man, I'm, I'm glad that you changed that today. Thank you. We've looked at a lot of great things like devotion. We've looked at discipline. We've looked at compassion. We've looked at hope. Uh, we've looked at staying away from worry last week. And I'm happy today that we were talking about something that is familiar to all of us. You know, when you get up here and you preach, you're trying to establish connection and you want context. You want people to go on the journey with you. But this is easy today because this is something that we live in really regularly. I think people that are here in the room that would say that you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you would identify with this, with this struggle, with this thing. And maybe if you uh, have some kind of faith, maybe not a Christian faith, or no faith at all, you would still feel a bent towards this. And what we're looking at today is temptation. Temptation. As you sit here in your stretchy pants, uh, temptation is something we're probably all familiar with. As you had too much of something this week, perhaps. I love Thanksgiving. It is a fascinating holiday where we're thankful by eating way too much. It's fascinating the way that we rub it in the face of other people who might not have what we have. But uh, that's an issue with Thanksgiving that I have, and this is about temptation. So we'll save that for another day. But temptation, I've resisted, is what we're looking at this week. That We would today take a look at a passage that I think a lot of us are familiar with, maybe in a new lens for you, an old lens for some of us in the room, as we see Jesus as the author and the perfecter of our faith and how he held up to temptation. But you'll get three things from me today, and here are the three things we're going. I'm going to tell you where we're going. We'll look at the perspective of our temptation, our perspective of our temptation. What do we think about it when we think about temptation? What's the deal? The nature, our nature in temptation. So not just what temptation is, but what we do in it and how we can look to Christ as an example. And finally, the benefits that we gain from temptation. Perspective, nature, and benefits. So first, we'll look at perspective. What is temptation? Temptation is us being led by an enemy, right? The devil. Satan is the name that I prefer because its roots are in someone who's an accuser or a deceiver. So we know that there's a very real enemy out there in Satan who's here to steal, kill, and destroy, and he pulls us away from faithfulness away from trusting God towards other things. That's a really easy definition of temptation. But here's the thing about temptation. The more time we spend with temptation, we become less and less shocked by its nature. Think about that in your own faith. The first time you might have been tempted to a particular thing, to act out in anger, to reach for a substance, to tell a lie, whatever it is, you would think, Oh, God, why would I do this? We just sang about God's goodness, right? And I love when Lauren backed off the mic and we heard this congregation, this church, sing about God's goodness. And we could open up this microphone and all of you could come one by one 
and talk about how God has been so, so good to you. But temptation is Satan with his little crafty hands trying to make us doubt God's goodness and to pull us away. But the longer that we're in this thing, the longer that we're around any one temptation, its nature becomes less and less shocking. I'm going to establish this with you in two ways. One is one of my favorite stories of all time. It's, it's kind of weird that it even happened. Uh, let me ask you guys this question. Who's watched Tiger King? Would you raise your hand if you've watched the Tiger King documentary? Okay, this is a church. It's okay. It's confessional. We show grace. It's fine. If you chose to do that during one of the darkest periods of human history, to numb your senses with the story of a tiger and some weird people. I, I didn't watch Tiger King because it felt too real to me, like too close to home. I've been in Mississippi a long time, and when I watched the first five minutes, all I could think about was the Collins Zoo. Y'all know the Collins Zoo? If anybody here is, is a part of the Collins Zoo, please come talk to me afterwards. I want to know how this thing works. But I, I've driven past it for a long time, and I've just thought about, you know, the short story, The Most Dangerous Game. Like, I think you go in there, and then you become the animal in the Collins Zoo. I don't really know how that thing works, but that's, that's why I didn't watch Tiger King. But before Tiger King, there was this guy, Ming of Harlem. Let's show this picture. Uh, that is Ming, who's a 425-pound tiger, who in 2003 was found by the New York Police Department living inside an apartment in Harlem. And Ming is a fascinating story because one, why? Just literally why? That's my first question. And second, the Ming's owner uh, found him, and by found I mean bought him for a few thousand dollars, quote. So if you're in the tiger market, I don't know a guy, but apparently it's only a few thousand dollars. He bought this tiger when he was uh, only 20 pounds. He was bottle feeding him every day inside his 400-ish square foot apartment in Harlem, and Ming grew and grew and grew into something that was consuming 20 pounds of chicken thighs every day. <laughs> and, and Ming's owner, it's just fascinating reading interviews about this guy who had a tiger in an apartment. He talks about how he was so endeared to the tiger and that the tiger knew him and that they, uh, even sometimes when this guy was watching TV, they'd get down on the ground and wrestle. This guy's wrestling with a 400-pound tiger in a 400-square-foot apartment in Harlem. All right, you guys are with me. It's weird. It's so weird. But he was sort of desensitized to what Ming had ultimately become. Now, here's what's weird. Uh, There's no way that this would be able to happen now, right? If this guy had a tiger in his apartment, someone would post up, like, a video on TikTok. It'd go viral. They'd find out that this guy had a tiger in his apartment. But he was able to keep him a secret for a very long time. It was only when his owner really forgot the nature of what Ming was. And he also uh, brought in an adopted gray kitten named Smokey. And I think you know where the story's going here, right? So Ming and Smokey were not on the same page at some point. And as Ming went to, I mean, just like probably swallow whole this kitten, not even crunch him up, uh, the owner got in the way and Ming got a piece of his arm. So when he went to the hospital and said, hey, I got bit by a dog, they went, nah, bro, that ain't a dog. (laughs) And then they figured out that he had a tiger in his apartment. But it's fascinating, right, that this man would raise something up that he knew would be a threat to him, but because he spent so much time with it, he kept it. The second thing I want to show you are uh, these guys. I have a toddler at home, so this is very near and dear to me. 
Mike Wazowski and James P. Sullivan in Monsters, Inc. Mike is referred to as Michael in my house. I'm not really sure why. My daughter calls him by his formal name. So he's got that going for him. But it's really interesting. These, uh, Monsters, Inc. was created by these two guys. So on the right, the taller guy, you'll see Pete Doctor. And here on the left, you'll see John Lasseter, which is not our John Lasseter. Uh, our John Lasseter's a little better looking than this guy. No disrespect to that John Lasseter. But we have uh, these two dudes here who, after they made Toy Story and a couple other movies, they were wondering what their next Pixar film was going to be. They went into this journey, I think, of what probably would be a more emotional movie of a guy who's in his 30s, who kind of has an existential crisis and rediscovers these monsters that he never dealt with as a child. So these monsters came back and they followed him around and only by him addressing what the monster was, they eventually disappeared. Really deep movie. But they didn't go with that because they didn't think it would work for kids. Instead, they went with the premise of Monsters, Inc., right? That these guys would scare children for work and then over the course of the movie, they're endeared to one another, monsters and this kid, and then they move from scaring to making kids laugh. So they thought that would have a better ending. But the fascinating thing about this is that, you know, Pete on the left looked at John on the right and he thought that that was the dumbest idea he'd ever heard in his life, (laughs) even though that's the movie that they ended up making. Because uh, Pete knew that children would leave that movie and still be afraid of monsters. And if you're a parent or if you've been young recently, you have a sibling, you know that there's this constant game of trying to reassure children that there are no monsters in the dark, no monsters in the closet. But in this really fascinating movie, they are trying to dispel some of this. Even though Pete on the left told John on the right, there's no way that this is going to work. Interesting that they had that tension in that movie, but I'd just say, like, who's right there? If monsters were real, I would say that they're probably more like what Pete had in mind. But we tend to do what John does, and we dispel and disquiet. We say, no, 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 that's cool, man. These monsters, they're not here to hurt us. They're here to help us. So those two points with a tiger and a monster, how do you view your temptation? Is it like this? Has any one temptation or temptation as a whole in your life become something that you've kept in your apartment? Is it something that you should view as something that can pull you away from the goodness of God? Or have you kept it close and made it something that's endearing to you, like a pet or a cute monster that you can handle and you can manage because it's here to help you? The second thing I want us to look at is our nature in temptation. What do we do And who do we look to in the times where we're tempted? We're in Luke chapter 4 today. One of the tellings of Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a really important setting here because we see Jesus as one who's able to withstand the temptation that Israel, God's people, failed to withstand in the wilderness. We see Jesus as the truer and better Israel, the one who was tested, was tempted, but was without fault, as we see in Hebrews chapter 4. So let's look at this together on the screen, or if you got it in front of you, we're in Luke 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I appreciate how blatantly obvious the Bible is at some point. Hey, Jesus didn't eat for 40 days. When it was over, guess what? Newsflash, hungry. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. 
And Jesus answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It's written, You shall, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. And then he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then Jesus answered him, It said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Interesting here, a couple of things going on. One, I talked about the wilderness. The wilderness is something that people have set themselves apart in for a while in our Jewish Christian tradition to test priorities and to test devotion. We see Jesus fasting, which was the thing that would happen. We see Moses fasting on a mountain twice. We see Elijah fasting on a mountain once, 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights points to the 40 years in the wilderness for Israel. And also, it's, a, it's about as long as a person can go without permanent bodily harm when they're fasting. So we see that all of these things, wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, very important to Jesus proving himself as the truer and better Israel, the one who would walk with God but fulfill everything that God had called him to do, one who would be tempted like they were but who would resist temptation like they did not. We see in Jesus the truer and better Israel. But the devil, Diablos, Satan, he's the one that we see pitted against Jesus here. And it's interesting, our perspective of the devil who brings temptation, right? I already talked about how sometimes we let temptation set up shop in our life because we downplay it, we think it's cute. But what about the devil, right? A very real enemy, one who's an accuser, one who's a liar, a deceiver, one who's come to steal, kill, and destroy, one who roams earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. That's the devil who hates all of us. But sometimes we make him cute. My parents are here in the room, and this is always funny to me, that this was me at a couple of months old, dressed as Satan, as a Halloween costume. I wonder, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, like I love this, it's a cute picture, and I probably was a terrible child, so Satan was appropriate, right? But like, what, what's the career trajectory for that guy, right? Like strip club owner, cocaine dealer, <laughs> pastor. <laughs> anyway, this is what we do, right? Like, we, uh, we kind of make Satan cute, and, and I get it. Like, it is, it's, it's funny, and it's cute, and if Stella keeps acting up, we'll see if she won't look like Satan one day. But I, uh, it's interesting, like, our perspective of Satan, you can take that down, that's, yeah, cool. I look like I'm about to steal a car in that picture, too, with the keys. What is our perspective of Satan? Do we see a very real enemy? who dangles a carrot in front of our nose and says, come this way, doubt God's goodness. Give in to your temptation. Right? Temptation's not the sin, but the thing that temptation leads to is the sin. And it looks different for all of us. We all have a different wiring and a different nature, a different proclivity towards sin, and that makes temptation look really different for a lot of us. 
But here's what's interesting about Jesus's temptation, and I think about a temptation that we might all be led to, is that there is nothing new under the sun. You know, I think about 1 Corinthians 10, I think it's 13. It talks about God allowing us to be tested, but with every temptation, he gives us a way of escape. Uh, And what we're tempted with is not uncommon to man, but he gives us that way of escape so that we can grow, so that we can prove his faithfulness, so that we can see him as better than Satan. But we see this, that Jesus' three temptations were like Israel's three temptations in the desert. I'll give you guys some, some text here. It was the craving of food, the worship of a false god, and the testing of God. Again, we see Jesus as the truer and better Israel, one who faced the same things and was better for it. And I will tell you this, Jesus has faced what we face. He has been where you have been. We're headed into Christmas, into the Advent season, and I'm so thankful for that. We have an Advent guide that some of our staff has worked on with a devotional week and some activities for, uh, for your families if you have kids at home that we'd love for you to pick up and to journey through, and I pray that it would, it would bless you. But we see Advent as coming, celebrating that Jesus would come into the world as fully God and fully man. So we see Jesus as having divine power, divine authority, right, fully God, but fully man that he would be willing to humble himself, that he would be willing to subject himself to weakness and to temptation. And there are people who would study passages like this and they would say Jesus was immune to temptation because he was God. Well, if that's true, then what Jesus did on the cross is really cheap. But he lived a vulnerable human life just like you and me. But he chose the way of faithfulness and obedience, not the way of temptation, not the way of sin. And the thing that's underneath each of these temptations that I would point you to today is that, yes, they were a temptation to the action, but in every temptation to an action we have, there's really something underneath it, right? Like the sin is there, and and we want that, but we really want what the sin thinks that it will bring us. So we see these three temptations, and I think they could be common for us today. Satan tempted Jesus with, Comfort, power, and security. We'll look at these one by one. Comfort, power, security. The first one, turn a stone to bread. He tempted Jesus with comfort, right? What did Luke say? And he was hungry. I love that. So obvious. And here's the cool part about these temptation stories. These were delivered directly out of the the mouth of Jesus to the biblical writers. No one went with Jesus here. This is Jesus' account to his people. So Jesus is telling his people, man, I was hungry. They're going, no, duh, Jesus. But in this, Jesus went out there to be tempted, to be tested, to fast, to devote himself to prayer and to seeking God, to getting himself ready for his public ministry. It talks about Jesus leaving from the Jordan. That's where he was baptized. Baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Baptized to set himself apart for public ministry. Right? Some of you might need to follow in Jesus and be baptized by immersion after conversion. They're in the baptistry. We got two next week. I'm really excited about it. Some of you may need to take a step in baptism to set yourself apart to faithfully follow Jesus. But in his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended. And they heard the voice of the Father saying what? Behold, 
This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And what does Satan hit Jesus with? If you really are the son of God, right? He questions Jesus' worth. He questions his personhood. He questions his identity. So this stone to bread, yeah, it's comfort that Jesus would have a physical longing, that he would want something, but that it would be at the wrong time. And Satan says, hey, look, if you really are who you say you are, man, you can do whatever you want to do. It don't matter. You came here to, to not eat, but if you want to eat, if you're the son of God, you're going to get some bread. Beyond that, as we think about Jesus launching out into his public ministry, turning stones to bread, it would be an interesting way for him to get more followers, right? About a fifth of, of Israel, about a fifth of the area that Jews lived was actually good for growing food. So turning stones to bread, man, it would make people love him fast. And that would probably be comfortable for Jesus too, to be the guy who passes out bread. We see Jesus feeding in his ministry. We absolutely see that, where he is concerned for people's physical needs. And I would say that as you're looking at this, you're thinking that I'm going to say, don't be comfortable. And that's not what I'm telling you. But I am saying to you, your comfort may not be in the timing that God would have it. You may long for something in a season where he wants you to grow and to need him and to be dependent. You may be in something really uncomfortable right now, but he is growing you. Right? The Bible is full of agricultural metaphors. And I'm not a farmer, but farming takes a long time. And holiness takes a long time in people. So when we choose to make ourselves comfortable by following our temptation to the end, we step outside of the time that God would have for us. The second is this authority to rule. It's a temptation to power. Power. And here's the irony, right, that Satan would take Jesus up and he'd show him, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, a powerful enemy that we have, one who's able to do things like that. Let's not cheapen Satan and what he can do. But we see that he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and he says, hey, you can have this if you just bow and worship me. It's a fascinating proposal because Jesus came to rule and reign, and he came to make all things right. And this would have been a shortcut to it. But at what cost? Doing things Satan's way instead of doing things his way. And I'd ask you, as you lead and work and love and serve, where might you be choosing the wrong kind of power? Right? Where does your position, where is your position something that you use incorrectly? Where is your proximity or a relationship history, or whatever you have, where are those things, things that you twist to get what you want instead of following in the way of Jesus? It's interesting. I love this passage in Philippians 2, 5. It talks about Jesus not considering equality with God something to be grasped, which is interesting, right? It's like, what is this? Does it mean Jesus had bad hands, like he couldn't catch anything, like couldn't keep it up? Like what, what's the story here? But what we see is that Jesus, he did not consider his godness, his full deity, something to be used to his own advantage. That's what we see. The Greek is kind of weak there and grasped. But it's this idea of something to be wielded for one's own benefit. 
Instead, we see Jesus taking his full deity, his power and his authority and his future, and giving it to us and inviting us in. So instead of some egomaniac who would rule the world in a moment, we see a gracious king who would invite us in to his work of humbly building the kingdom. And it looks different than the way that we would want it to. I'll tell you, I like flexing my muscles and making people afraid of me. I want people to fall in line. But whose kingdom is that? It's mine. That's not Jesus' kingdom. Out of relationship and humility and love, that's how we serve. That's the true power we have as God's people. A power to look beyond just this life and into the life to come. The last one would be forcing God's hand. Go up to the temple, throw yourself down. Kind of a weird thing. We got to do some context here. There was rabbinic tradition, so rabbis were teaching at that time that the Messiah would appear on top of the temple. So this is something that Jesus would have been familiar with, that Satan would have known Jesus would be familiar with. Saying, hey, you say you're the Messiah. Let's go up top and show everybody. Because if God's really got you, then he's really got you. This would have been an easy way for Jesus to gather a great following as he's about to what? Launch into his public ministry. Tell you what could get the ball rolling really fast. Jump off this thing and don't die. (laughs) Right in front of all these religious leaders. There you go. You got the temple, you got the kingdom. Game, set, match. But that's not the way that Jesus wanted to work this. Yes, this is a temptation to physical security, but think about this as Jesus is gathering followers. He's about to go and he's, he's getting more disciples and more and more people will follow him as he heads to the cross and then the resurrection and then the ascension. This is really just as much about physical security as it is about relational security. Right, like who are Jesus' people and how can they stick with him better? That's what Jesus is tempted to by Satan. That would be his sin here, to be less trusting, to be more controlling in all the spheres of life that he has. And that's often what we do, right, with control issues. It's a security thing. I need to feel safe. I need to feel protected. I need to feel loved. I need to feel committed to. It's a security thing. Where is our ultimate security? Is it in Jesus or is it in the things that we can keep right here within arm's length? The pieces that we can move to make sure that we're okay, not vulnerable, not weak, not betrayed. Jesus instead chooses faith. And that's what we invite people in in our life, faith, right? That they would see us and know us and love us. I pray because of your faith, but this temptation to security is one that would force God's hand to make all the pieces in Jesus' life nice and neat and tidy. And here's what we see in these three temptations, is that it's kind of like an iceberg. I read a book uh, a while ago and then reread it with some friends last year, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. Great book, 10 out of 10 recommend. But he talks about this principle with uh, emotions and with things that we do on the outside, emotions and actions. And he talks about an iceberg. There's the thing up top, and then there's the thing underneath that we can't see. Right? We only see part. Let's make that about temptation today. There's the temptation to that thing. But the question we have to ask, and the question that I think so few of us do, is what's underneath? 
What's the motivation? What's the action? What's the thing here? What's the thing behind the thing? And I'd ask you today, what's the thing behind the thing for you? What do you go to when time gets tough? When you feel stressed, when you need a release, when you need to relax, when you need to get everybody back in their place? What is the temptation for you and what's underneath that? And here's what we see with those and whatever our things are, that comfort, power, and security, they aren't inherently bad things. In and of themselves, those are great things. Those are things that God wants to give you. That's why you have the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you, that guides you to godliness and gives you peace and comfort. He wants to bless us. We're God's people. He's given us abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. Right? We see promise after promise in the Bible. But this is what we see, that Satan can turn good things into bad things in our life. And what's that about? That's about idolatry. Where are your priorities? What is your priority? Why do you do the things that you do? Good things can be turned into bad things. And I think that's one of Satan's craftiest schemes. Is your idolatry of family making you a bad worker? Is your idolatry for work making you a bad family member? Is your commitment to love and to grace keeping you from really upholding some biblical truth in your life? Is your commitment to freedom in Christ, right, that we've been set free, free from the law, is it keeping you from seeking God in daily disciplines? What good thing might Satan have turned into a bad thing in your life? Things are just things, but it's about what's underneath the iceberg. Why do you do the things that you do? Why does the temptation that Satan gives you work for you? It's only by being a good student of ourselves that we can really see how to follow Jesus more fully in holiness. When we choose to follow our temptation to its end, here's what happens. Yes, we sin, but we end up putting God to the test. We put God to the test. It's interesting, right? What what does that mean, to put God to the test? It's to hold him up and say, are you really good? Are you really who you say you are? Will you really take care of me? Are you going to be faithful and true? Can I trust that you have my best interest in mind? Let's think about the original sin in the garden, right? Did God really say that? Did he really say that? Is he really who he says he is? And the thing that was attached to it, the action, he doesn't want you to be like him, which is he doesn't want you to have nice things. And I know in my life, that's when I give in to temptation. When I think that there's something out there that God's withholding from me, that there's a better way, a a more full way. When I was a kid, I'm, I'm just young enough to have had some internet in my life, but I'm just old enough to still have at Christmas time circled things in the toy catalog, right? That's nostalgia, man. It's toy circling season right now. But, uh, my Toys R Us, I tried to find a picture of it, the one on County Line, I couldn't. So let's just picture together Toys R Us, a magical land, right? Just so much money burned at that place, but that's a different story. Imagine with me a child and a father. Let's call him a son, and let's call the dad. Uh, you know, they're with a son that's five years old. So let's picture that he walks his kid into this toy store, in a Toys R Us, and he's walking around, and they're doing the catalog thing, right? Hey, Christmas is coming up. What do you want? The kid sees something and he goes, oh yeah, I'd, I'd like that action figure. 
Walk around a little longer. Hey, I'd like that Lego kit. Hey, I'd like that bike. Hey, I'd like that video game. They kept the video game section in there so locked up. It was really weird. Anyway, child memory. He walks around. He says, I'd like this, and i like this, and i like this. And picture with me at the very end when they're getting close to the register. The dad goes down on one knee. He grabs his son, and he says, you know all those wonderful things that you just saw? Well, you're never going to get any of those things. <laughs> never. So you can like them all you want, but you're never going to get them. And what kind of dad would that be? A terrible father. The kind that other people in the store would probably beat that dad up and try to find a new father for the child. But look, inside of us, that's what we think God does. That we see all these wonderful things. Things that we want. Things that we wish we had. A life that was ours. People that were ours. Places we could go, things we could have, emotions we could feel, security we want. And we think that he's keeping them back from us. And that has a deep effect on who we are. Sinclair Ferguson was the pastor who I heard use that analogy. And this is what he said. It's in this distortion, that twisted picture of a father, that inevitably produces a child who, were, who will either willfully rebel or will find himself always feeling he's got to do something to earn his father's love. Man, is that what we do? Is that what you do? Do you think that what you want is just around the corner from what God has for you? To do it your own way, to live your life your own way, Is that what we think? That God's keeping the good stuff in the back and that we'll never get it? It's interesting to think about if we really trust God's goodness when we go the way of our temptation, we put him to the test. The last thing as we round towards home is that there are benefits in our temptation. Temptation has benefits. Weird, right? It looks like the benefit of temptation is sin. No, it's not. This is what we see in Deuteronomy in chapter 8. God tested Israel to reveal what was within their heart. We can find inside of us in seasons of temptation when we're faithful whether or not we really think that God's good. The benefits of temptation. I thought about how to convey this to you in a couple of different ways, and I couldn't find a better way than this quote by John Newton. John Newton, who was a part of the slave trade in England, lots of ghosts, lots of demons in his life. This is what he wrote in a letter called The Benefits of Temptation. It's a really creative point on my end. Let's stand up together and I'll read this for us as the band comes back up. This is what he says. By enduring temptation, you As a living member of the body of Christ, you have the honor of being conformed to your head. He suffered being tempted. And because he loves you, he calls you to a participation of his sufferings. Right? Because he loves us, he invites us to participate in his suffering and to taste his cup. Not the cup of wrath, 
That he drank all alone, and he drank it all. But in affliction, he allows his people to have fellowship with him. In that, they fill up the measure of his sufferings. And we can say, as he has, so we are in the world. Marvel not that the world hates you, neither marvel that Satan rages against you. Should not the disciple be as his Lord? Can the servant can the servant expect or desire peace from the avowed enemies of the master? We're to follow in his steps. And can we wish, if it were possible, to walk a path strewn with flowers when his was strewn with thorns? Let us not be terrified by the power of our adversaries, which is to them an evident token of eternal suffering, but to us of salvation and to that of God. To us it's given, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. If we would make peace with the world, the world would leave us alone. If we could be content to walk in the ways of sin, Satan, he'd give us no disturbance. But because grace has rescued us from his dominion and the love of Jesus, it constrains us, it keeps us, it guides us to live a life to him alone. Therefore, the enemy, like a lion robbed of his prey, he roars against us. He roars, but he can't devour. He plots and rages, but he can't prevail. He disturbs, but he can't destroy we suffer with Christ, we shall also reign with him. In due time, he'll bruise Satan under our feet, make us more than conquerors, and place us where we shall hear the voice of war no more forever. I love that quote because this is what we see when we see God's goodness, when we see his faithfulness. Man, there's no other way to go. We've all followed temptation to its end, sin in your life. You know it comes up short. You wouldn't be here today if you didn't know that was true. There is a better way. And it's in following a faithful, perfect example in Jesus Christ, the truer and better Israel, one who walked with God and was faithful, faithful to the very point of death. As we do the last Sunday of every month, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, communion. If you're serving that, would you walk down today? We, uh, we love celebrating the Lord's Supper together, and I love what it pictures, particularly today. We see Jesus in the garden, tempted to not go to the cross, not to suffer, but instead he chose to die. He gave up his preferences. He didn't follow the way of temptation. Why? To secure blessing for us. Not just blessing from the stuff we have or that we can be better people. That's a cheap version of faith. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that's what we see and celebrate today in communion. That Jesus would die on the cross for our sins so that we can have peace with God. And that that peace would guide us to more fully follow him, to fight against temptation, and to see that in our sufferings and our choices, when we choose his way, we come to know him more fully and we become more like him. So as you come down a little bit, we have uh, both the bread and the juice in cups that are stacked on top of each other. Take those on your way back to your seat. This is for anyone who would call on the name of Jesus as Lord. You don't have to be a member here, no denominational structure you have to be a part of, but if you are not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask that you'd, uh, you'd stay from this. It's something reserved for the faith family. People who would say, yes, Jesus, I see you. I know you're Lord. I know you saved me, and I want to follow you. Let's pray together. Lord, we are blessed. God, I think about our, our verse, our passage. We may memorize it this week, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 18. Lord, we are supposed to rejoice always. 
to give thanks in all circumstances. Lord, that we would pray without ceasing as we do that. Lord, we can only do those things because of your goodness. Lord, so often we question it. We would walk away. We choose our own way. We do our own thing. We'd ask God, do you really have the best stuff for us? Or are you like that father who says, you'll never get these things you want? Satan tempts us to go our own way, but God, would we be faithful to you? Lord, when we choose faithfulness, God, would we taste more of who you are? That you are faithful because you love us. And you keep us close, Lord, because you have our best in mind. So Lord, would we look in our own hearts, in our own lives, about the thing behind the thing? Where do we not trust you? What pet sin, what pet temptation do we keep in the apartment of our lives? Lord, would you help us, give us strength. You give us a way of escape for every temptation. Lord, would you help us do that? So Lord, as we celebrate your supper here, communion, that we can know you and be one with you, and because of your blood, one with one another. Lord, would you bless us? We ask these things in your great name. Amen.